Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo, the podcast where we delve into the mystery of Scooby-Doo media, getting clues from people who helped bring our favorite mystery-solving dog to life on various platforms, and maybe eating some Scooby snacks along the way. I'm your host, Alexa Lawler. Scooby-Doo, where are you? And it would have been mine if it hadn't been to those meddling kids. Gang, we've just been handed our next mystery. Blasted meddling kids. (laughs) So, it has been quite a while, hasn't it? I'm so sorry. It has been so long since I have been able to put out another episode of this podcast. And I've been sitting on this interview for a little while. Um, I'm so excited to have finally had a chance to edit it and put it together. For the 29th episode and the return of the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo, I had the chance to chat with writing duo extraordinaire Justin Becker and Steve Clemens. Justin and Steve wrote Be Quiet Scooby-Doo together from Be Cool Scooby-Doo. And Steve also worked on If You Can't Scooby-Doo the Time, Don't Scooby-Doo the Crime, and Be Cold Scooby-Doo. This interview did take place in early 2021, so it's possible that a few things might be outdated now, particularly any references to what was going on that particular day that we did the interview. But overall, I'm just really excited for you guys to finally hear it. But I'm sure after such a long hiatus, you're ready for me to stop talking so we can get into the interview. Hey, how's it going? Thank you so much for uh, chatting with me today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. No problem. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is exciting. So I think since this is the first time I'm having two people on the podcast, if you could just uh, briefly introduce yourselves, Justin, if you maybe want to start. Yeah, sure. Uh, My name is Justin Becker. Um, uh, This is my voice. When you're hearing this voice, it's me who's talking. (laughs) Uh, And and this is Steve Clemens. Uh, This is my voice. Uh, I sound... um, Maybe a little less put together than Justin, <laughs> but this is my voice. Uh, and um, yeah, and a little brief background on us is we, we're writing partners um, and we've written together uh, uh, a ton. Yep. And we grew up together outside of Chicago. So we've been doing it together for a long time. Yeah, we won't say how long, but it's been since uh, since high school. Uh so it's it's more than one decade, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I always start off with three questions of Scooby-Doo related trivia, if you're up for it. Yeah, sure. Hit us. We are definitely going to not, we are definitely going to miss all three, just to let you know. <laughs> I guess this one's uh, kind of given away by the screen beside you here, but uh, in the episode, Be Quiet Scooby-Doo, what is the name of the crystal formations? Well, thank you so much for having the screenshot that has the name of it right now. (laughs) That is very helpful. Um, I believe, if I read correctly, it's called the Crystal Canopy. What a layup. (laughs) That is correct. (laughs) 
Wait, is this a did Justin get that point and I didn't? Uh, <laughs> is this a competition? Oh yeah, is one of us gonna win? You can work on a team. It's fine. <laughs> All right. All right. Um. So also in Be Quiet Scooby Doo, which member of the gang becomes so enthralled with the crystals that they begin to understand the motive of the crystal crawler and act like the monster for a little bit? Uh, I know this one. It's Velma. It's got to be Velma, yeah. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. Two for two. And the last question for the trivia. In the episode Be Cold, Scooby-Doo, which member of the gang is seeing snow for the very first time? I know this one, too. <laughs> hmm, I had nothing to do with this one. This one was uh, Steve on his own, so uh, I have no idea. Yeah. This one's more for Steve, but <laughs> and and it's a deep cut because it's story by. I didn't write the script; I just wrote the story. Um, uh, this, I believe, it's Shaggy. Yes, it is Shaggy. Yes. Okay. Sweet. Uh, I wasn't sure what they had changed. I've never seen the episode. I've seen uh, um, the other two. Be quiet, and uh, if you can't Scooby Doo the time, don't Scooby Doo the time. The crime. I always mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, definitely. A little backstory, I guess, for your listeners. Um, you know, Steve and I usually write together. Um, the timeline during Be Cool was such that um, uh, Marley, Halpern Grazer, and I had, had sold a, a show uh, to Disney, uh, and we were waiting for all of the like Warner Brothers and Disney legal wrangling to get through. Um, and, uh, and so we started writing on, on Be Cool, and then all of a sudden our show got greenlit. And so I had to pull off of that. Uh, and so Steve then continued on his own. So Steve wrote more obviously than on his own. Um, but I only was directly involved um, with one episode. I think I wrote two or three more outlines that I don't think ended up getting approved for one reason or another. But uh, yeah, I only, I only have anything to do with Be Quiet Scooby-Doo. Yeah, and then I got hired on that other show, so I believe that's why I didn't write Be Cold. I'm not sure. Yeah. How many episodes did you do on your own, Steve? Um, I, I, on my own, I wrote one episode, uh, story and teleplay, uh, and I wrote a story by the other one. And then I think at that point, um, the other show offered me full-time employment, so... Um, so to start off, what's your relationship to Scooby-Doo? Did you grow up watching? We'll maybe start with Steve on this one. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I grew up in any sense of like, I followed it religiously or anything, but, uh, but I did watch a version of Scooby-Doo when I was a kid. I, I, uh, my, when I was a kid, I watched, um, a pup named Scooby-Doo, uh, which was, um, one where all of them were young kids and Scooby was a puppy or they were younger and Scooby was a puppy. And, um, he, he basically looked like scrappy, uh, but it was Scooby. And the, the other distinction of that one is, uh, the monsters I believe were real, which I remember as a kid, I, um, I knew enough about Scooby having, I don't know if I, this is my first memory, so I don't know if I actually had seen Scooby, but I knew enough about it 
that uh, that I thought it was awesome that the monsters were real, and I was like, they're not real in this one. This is a this is a game, ch- or sorry, they're they're real in this one. They're not fake. This is a game changer, um, uh, because they had real monsters, um, and it was fun. But I don't know if it's good. I haven't gone back and rewatched it. Uh, and I then I saw some Scooby, you know, like reruns on Cartoon Network uh, in high school, and you know they're their wacky team ups and stuff and then uh, then I didn't really watch any more until until this Justin what about you yeah I mean I think I definitely watched it as a kid uh, in the same way that all children seem or at least of our time uh, just passively turned on the TV and watched whatever cartoons were on and if it came on then I was happy um, it's funny in preparation for this I was trying to think I'm like oh what what are some of my memories of Scooby-Doo uh, and I suddenly remembered, Steve, I think that we, in a group, oh, yeah. at like one of our high school dances, a Halloween dance, we went as the Scooby gang. Uh, like, yeah, it must have been that's... like sophomore or junior year. Steve was uh, Fred, you can, as you can probably imagine. Uh, I was, uh, I had hair then and brown hair and I can grow a beard. So I was uh, shaggy. Uh, our redheaded friend was Daphne and our friend who had brown hair and glasses was Velma. And then our other friend who uh, I think it was his idea to do this, he's like, I'm gonna make a great Scooby costume. And I think he just like put on a brown shirt and uh, maybe made a, like a card, like a uh, uh, colored paper, made like a, a collar. That blows <laughs> my mind that I, even having written multiple episodes of Scooby and brainstormed for the show that I had never remembered that until you just brought it up. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember. Cause I didn't want to be, I didn't want to. And you guys were like, come on. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's funny. It only occurred to me this morning as well. And I think also thinking back, I think we won best group costume. Like it's, you know, uh, yeah, it's very funny that. It, <laughs> God, memory is, me- memory is messed up, man. Yeah. Whole thing, whole things can just be completely looked over for so long. And then, anyway, sorry. It came up. It came up. I was just like, I'm like Scooby Doo, Scooby Doo. I'm like, and then I suddenly got a flash of someone wearing, yeah, like taped on uh, um, construction paper ears, and I was like, who was that? And then I all of a sudden came back in like a flash, and I was like, oh, oh my, God, I'm remembering repressed trauma. Yeah. That would that would be great to see, actually. <laughs> Because just looking at the both of you, I was like, okay, Steve was probably Fred. Yep. <laughs> and you're like, what was Justin? <laughs> I'm, you know, you can't, I'm sitting down, you can't quite tell, but I have, uh, I definitely have the, uh, the shaggy body type. I'm, I'm lanky. Yeah. I am slightly stooped. My legs are uh, longer than the rest of my body. Yeah, it all it all. Yeah, you have up. a lot of you have a lot of medical issues that aid in your uh, <laughs> in looking like shit. That's right. Yeah, it's all it's all all symptoms of uh, of deformations. <laughs> my hunched back, my weird legs. <laughs> I look like a cartoon version of a hippie, uh, and your hair really did look like him back. Then. Yeah, it did. That was the most accurate part. That's awesome. <laughs> And uh, what was the story of how the both of you came to work in animation? Um, Well, you know, I'm going to assume that uh, anyone listening to your podcast is probably listening to some of the other ones. I don't, this would be a strange place to start fresh. Uh, Marley really described it very well. Uh, Marley's 
episode generally, I would recommend. And Marley comes off very, very well in it. Um, but yeah. You actually stop this episode and go listen to Marley's? <laughs> that would basically be my my, <laughs> my uh, advice to anyone. Um, but yes, uh, so Marley and I and Steve uh, uh, were in a comedy troupe in college um, that was uh, big on YouTube uh, by virtue of being early adopters. Truly had nothing to do with quality or anything but yeah for like a minute there we were like you know up there in the top 10 comedian channels and uh, we were neck and neck with Derek Derek comedy if you're familiar with them uh donald glover came out of there uh still remains to be seen who will have the larger career ultimately uh he seems like he's doing pretty well and sort of winning at the moment but you know here i am on a scooby-doo podcast so uh comeback starts now um but yeah so we were in this comedy troupe and uh, we got hired by Warner Brothers, uh, who was doing kind of a, a, they called it a creative lab. And it was sort of like midway between an internship and a job. Uh, and they brought us out here to, to, to LA to um, basically, they knew that viral videos existed. Uh, they knew that, that people watched them and they really didn't know beyond that. And they assembled us to kind of tell them what to do with that. And uh, we did not have that answer. Uh, so that only lasted all of a year. Um, but Marley was the only one of us who had any foresight whatsoever. He quickly saw the writing was on the wall and he went to uh, where the people with the real jobs were, which was uh, you know the animation department. And he started talking to them and he gave them his samples. And so Marley was uh, you know able to parlay that into a, a kind of an entry level job. Um, meanwhile, then uh, when the program ended for me, Steve moved out to LA he and I resumed kind of our college and uh, high school writing partnership, and we were starting to do live action stuff. Um, you know, we uh, had a bunch of different projects. We did some stuff for Adult Swim. Uh, we did some other stuff. And in that time, Marley kind of became entrenched, entrenched enough at Warner Brothers that he was, uh, when they were, um, when he was on the show Mad, and they were looking for writers, uh, he was able to submit my stuff and I eventually got in that way. Uh, so then I was on MAD and then um, Marley and I sold right now Kapow. And while that was, um, while they, while Disney and Warner Brothers were working out all the legal framework for how that partnership would work, uh, they're like, well, have you guys do on some other um, Warner Brothers shows? And at that point, I'm like, I'm going to bring in Steve as well. And so, Kind of in that interim for right now, Kapow started. Uh, we wrote on uh, new Looney Tunes, and we wrote on, um, you know, obviously Scooby Doo. Then uh, right now, Kapow happened uh, after, and then after that point, uh, Steve stayed at Warner Brothers for a little while, um, and he did Panicula, and he did Unikitty, and he did uh, Yabba Dabba Dinosaurs was his biggest one. Um, I'm talking for you, Steve. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to pretend you're not even here. Uh, yeah, that's fine. I was the, I was the story editor on Yabba Dabba. Don't forget that. <laughs> and uh, he was head writer of Yabba Dabba. And so he gave me a couple scripts, assignments, which was fun. And uh, nice payback after right now, Kapow, when I got to boss him around. So he got to boss me around. In a good way, too. Let me talk a little bit. You're right. All right. <laughs> it's all payback because... <laughs> Justin did me a solid. Uh, they when when they were when uh, right now Kapow was in development, 
Warner Brothers was like, hey, we'll toss you a few freelance episodes, different shows. And Justin was like, hey, would it be okay if I took half that money and, and gave it to uh, this other guy who so he can have some experience? And, uh, and because he did that, he was able to hire me on Right Now Kapow later on and uh and and boss me around so he got he earned it a little bit <laughs> yeah you gotta understand about me one thing that uh yeah uh, one thing about me is that uh i hate having a hundred percent of the money i really only want 50 percent <laughs> of the money so anytime i'm able to just split it and give it away oh i'm just happy as a clam you know <laughs> yeah you hate money yeah you, you like 50% money at all times. That's right. That's right. You give me $10, I'm going to say, no, just five. Just five is fine. <laughs> and was working in animation something that you both had pictured yourself doing, or did you just kind of fall into it? Steve, I talked a lot. Why don't you take this one? And answer um, both of us. Please get in my mindset and tell me what I felt. Oh, um, I... Don't think I, when I went to school, I didn't um, imagine it, but I watched so much animation that uh, it was kind of like, to some extent, a dream. I remember imagining, I went to film school, so I remember seeing the path unfold before me, and I can't draw as being like, all right, well, I could, you know, write, uh, become good at writing, and then maybe someday um, uh, sell a show, and then maybe if I could become successful, maybe I could sell like an animated show and do like my dream would be like action comedy or something just because animation allows you to do such crazy fun action stuff because i loved i mean i think at the time during college i was watching a lot of like anime but my favorite was um avatar the last airbender uh which dates me pretty well i think it's a three-year series so you can kind of tell how old i am uh but i was watching a lot of avatar last airbender and it was it in my opinion, merged like comedy and action in this really fun way. And I lean a little bit more towards comedy, but I still loved that show. And there was part of me that was just like, that would be like the dream. But I still saw no uh, pathway to that um, because I was in, in film school and I was like, oh, live action is what I'm studying and what I'm going to do. Uh, and then uh, sure enough, sketch comedy led to animated sketch comedy via Justin and um and then that led to animation and then i found myself but i had spent 10 years being like i don't know i guess i'll do live action so i i found myself in animation for a couple of years before i remembered oh yeah this is kind of like what i wanted to do um not necessarily kids animation in my head i was like oh you know adult swim is like the the pinnacle like i i want to do you know uh, sort of basically no notes animation where no one's giving me any notes and I'm just having fun. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I don't want to speak for Justin in that regard. Cause I don't necessarily think he had that, uh, journey, uh, or, uh, <laughs> but I, I do, I have always appreciated animation, never really saw myself realistically working in it. And then I found myself working in it and, and it took me a couple of years to remember. Oh yeah, this is awesome. I, I, I really like this. I really like being able to like, um, write for animation simply because you don't have to worry as much about budget and what's producible and you can pack it in with tons of, uh, you know, tons of stuff that you couldn't do in live action easily or would break your budget. Uh, and yeah, for, um, Steve and I actually both independently of one another, uh, at school, besides studying film, we also 
studied playwriting a lot. Uh, and that was originally my dream was to get into playwriting. Uh, and that's actually something that we bonded over with John um, when we met with him, John Coldenberry. Uh, John definitely cited a lot of similar uh, influences when he was describing like what he wanted the show to be. Like he definitely, he talked about um, Fred being kind of similar in some ways to Basil Fawlty from Fawlty Towers. Uh, and then he talked about kind of, he wanted to do the rapid fire of like a Noel Coward kind of thing or a, a Neil Simon, maybe he said. Uh, and so we definitely were like, oh, cool. And during that time, Steve and I, for whatever reason, we had just written a pilot for um, a live action pilot for uh, this production company uh, with a, a deal at um, ABC, I think. Uh, and it was basically a, a farce. And like, so we had gotten so into, you know, studying farces. Uh, like Faulty Towers. So when John kind of said that stuff, we're like, oh, wow. And our like, eyes lit up. We're like, yeah, we can absolutely do that. Uh, and then so John kind of steered us in that way for our our script, uh, which in retrospect was the exact opposite of what uh, Warner Brothers executives wanted. Uh, it's something that was just extremely talky, very verbal. Uh, and, uh, that was not at all what they wanted. Uh, so it's kind of like, a, imagine a GPS that's, telling you uh, to go straight into a wall. <laughs> that's kind of like, with the best of intentions, that's sort of what uh, it was like a little bit. Also so much of farce is like the physicality of the actors, like uh, like running around a set location and then to try and like recreate that in animation is basically impossible uh, in the way we were, coming from it with theatrical farce. Um, I've never seen it done. Uh, you can do it in film, like you can do it like Birdcage and, uh, and a couple others, but like it's almost impossible in, in animation. And we were like trying to do that. And, and then that's got us into some trouble. I mean, I think it's, I think it's definitely, it's possible. It's just not necessarily taking advantage of, of the, of what animation can offer. Like it's kind of, you know, grafting this other thing onto it. Um, you know, I had written on Mad and we had done a couple of scripts for new Looney Tunes, but we hadn't seen how they turned out. And this was Steve's like first animation job. And I think that, you know, now I think we would have approached this story a lot differently and maybe not have done it at all. Because I think, you know, in retrospect, uh, I think that the novelty of them not talking and we're only hearing in their mind doesn't work as well in animation as it would necessarily in like live action. Like in live action, if like live action generally, I feel like a commitment to a, a high concept conceit in an episode of like, no one's gonna say anything this whole episode, you appreciate that more like in community, you know, the, the TV show community, they did a lot of things like that, which is a, a whole a conceit that they stretch out for an entire episode and commit to. In this, like sometimes when I was watching it just now, I'm like, oh, kind of looks like we just forgot to do lip sync. Like you don't really feel, um, it doesn't feel like as much of a, a trick. It just kind of feels like a strange little choice. And so I don't think that it paid as much dividends as we were hoping it would to do this. And I think also it just created a lot of issues. Like, you know, now if I were ever to do anything like this, I, I would, the fact that we were freelance writers who met that once we turned in the script, which was so execution dependent, the fact that we would have no um, more communication with John or with the storyboarders 
left so much up to them that in our minds, like, well, it has to be this way. This is the only one, one way that it will work. Like that was kind of setting ourselves up for failure in a lot of ways. And John rewrote it uh, with Marley and they simplified it a great deal uh, and to, to its benefit for sure. Um, I think our first draft, uh, I read it over again last night and I'm like, oh, there's a lot of great jokes in here. My God, that was complex. Wow. Uh, I would not have done anything nearly like this if I was presented this opportunity again right now. Yeah. And that's, I think that's evident in our second draft, which was, uh, you know, um, 35% shorter and much closer to the, uh, to the end product with a few, with some, some lines being different here and there and, uh, and some character motivations. Um, but yeah, execution wise, it was, uh, you know, it's always hard when you have, don't have a ton of experience writing animation, how much do I need to put in here? And it's still hard even to this day. Cause it's like, depending on your director, some directors are going to be like, read it and be like, Oh, I, there's not enough telling me what to do. And then other directors are going to read it and be like, there's too much telling me what to do. I'm throwing half this out and, uh, and just doing it the way I want to do it. Um, but you can't operate under the assumption that that's going to happen. So you have to operate under the assumption that, you need to explain everything to them or a lot of stuff to them so that they understand what they're reading and then know that they might just throw most of it out. <laughs> uh, so it's definitely... Yeah, which is which is great because like, you know, ha- having both of us having run our own rooms or shows essentially, realizing that like, all right, whatever you write needs to be translated by a, a, a border and then later animation a- animators. And so... You know, it's it's a very different skill set than when we originally had, which was coming from film and coming from sketch comedy, where when we would write something, we were intending to make it ourselves, so we had to have an idea of how we would do it. In animation, it's good, obviously, to have an idea of how you envision it could work. Like, you don't want to write something that you're like, ah, it's kind of fuzzy, someone else will figure it out. You want to be able to have the, the answer if someone asks you, like, how did you imagine that we would set this scene up? Oh, I imagined it this way. But you don't want it to be, that's the only way you f- it'll work you want it to be like that it could interpreted a variety of ways because you know especially if you're just a freelance writer yeah i we, we'd have no interaction with the storyboarders you know but even when on on right now kapow um you know where i had we were a lot more hands-on uh you know with the directors and with the, with the borders it was just a very you still like you don't want to be that person over someone's shoulder being like do it this way like you want to empower someone to do it you know the way they want to do it and make the best choices that most creative choices they can so the idea of being that like that it would get more interesting and more and better uh at every subsequent step from writing through boarding through animation yeah justin mentioned earlier that we were only freelance writers and uh and we wrote the second draft of this uh script in two days um uh and i which Calls to mind a specific memory when we were talking about this leading into this interview. I was like, oh, yeah, the reason we did that was because I was actually, because we were only freelance, I was working another job and had to call in sick. Uh, and it was it was a quick turnaround. It was like, hey, we need you to do a rewrite. Oh, okay, no problem. No, usually that's a week or two. And they're like, we need it by Friday afternoon. And we were like, what? We just turned it in like a couple of days ago. And, uh, and, uh, and after initially getting past the, 
they can't do this to us. I have a job, uh, like a like a nine to five. Um, we we eventually were like, all right. Justin was like, you call in sick. Uh, you know, I'll shift things around, and we'll just spend two and a half days drinking tons of coffee, and uh, or sorry, two days drinking really day and a half because we had to turn it in. Um, a day and a half drinking tons of coffee and writing this thing. So it would we like write we wrote a bunch and then would switch back and forth and then be like, yep, I, this is good. Oh, I've changed this and then move on to the next thing. And it was this coffee fuel bender of just like create, like rewriting that I, I still look back fondly. I'm like, I can't believe we did that. We wrote, there was basically a page one rewrite in two days, which I was um, all out of pure necessity. Um, which we've since gone on to do a bunch of times, things like that. Like at the time I'm like, well, this is anomalous. This will never happen again. But now on a bunch of different projects, they're like, all right, great. Give us the, the first draft in two days. And we're like, okay, we can yeah. do that. But uh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's definitely when having two writers really pays. For sure. And to take a step back here, what is the story of how you got pulled in to work on Be Cool Scooby-Doo? Uh, Justin? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I touched on that a little bit. Um, uh, that, yeah, it was kind of in the interim when uh, we had sold, we had sold right now Kapow to Disney, but uh, they had still just, I think like all told, the legal wrangling between these two behemoth corporations, uh, as you might imagine, was not an easy thing. I think it probably took at least a year for them to figure it out. And uh, in the interim, Warner Brothers was like, Justin, we don't want you to go elsewhere, get a job somewhere else. So we're going to have you kind of bounce around on a couple of different WB shows. Um, and and I, at that time, was like, sounds great. Um, boy, this would be a lot more fun if Steve was here as well because uh, you know Steve and I had been doing a lot of writing together at that point and it was like we really kind of got it into it uh, as smooth a machine as we uh, were able to get going there and so I was like yeah let's bring him in that way I can really we can make this the best experience and write the best scripts we could and yes yeah, so we had, had, had done um, a couple different things like New Looney Tunes was the one that definitely that we had had written scripts for uh, I think we had um, done some development on other WB things. Like for a little while there, they were going to uh, relaunch. Um, they were going to relaunch the banana splits. And so like we did a bunch of development work on that. Um, and I think like a couple other things, like kind of, we were just kind of for a little bit there, we were with Marley going around. We were just kind of their, their go-to people for odd jobs and eventually then, yeah, Be Cool Scooby-Doo started and we met with John and um, got on really well with him. Yeah, we met with John initially and John sort of pitched his take on the show. And uh, and that's when he brought up the the farce and, and sort of his touchstones for each character. And we were like, all right, yeah, this could be like a really cool show. Because like, initially we were like, I don't know, Scooby-Doo, it can be good can be bad too. There's been all different versions of it. Uh, but then we, we, when we met with John, we were like, we got pretty excited about it. And then John brought us in and a couple other writers, including Marley and Josie Campbell, um, and brought us in for like a one day uh, writer's workshop 
um, unpaid, had a call sick day on that too, uh, <laughs> uh, to come in during the day and break a few different stories um, for, and, and sort of work as a group as writers to like come up with some ideas. And, and, uh, and that's where we turned um, silent episode slug line into like a, you know, a four sentence slug line of like, it could be this. Uh, and that was a, a fun day. And um, we came up with a couple different things. And um, we, that's how we got um, Be Quiet, Be Quiet Scooby-Doo. And then we came in and did that again to break our other outlines that, and um, uh, like Be Cold and Justin had a couple that um, ended up, you know, we don't want to go that direction. And they got like, uh, you know, set aside. <clears throat> and uh but we did that twice was have these uh sort of writers days where we'd come in and and workshop yeah it's interesting yeah that we they only got to do a few times when we got to do in person with with john and with marley and josie and it was always it was so fun like you know i would especially with this show i wish that we had been able to have a proper writer's room i really think it would have benefited tremendously especially because like John's approach to the show was so character-based, right? And he had such a specific, um, you know, idea of these characters that we only basically got to expose to that through talking to him and through reading a couple of the scripts. But like, if we'd actually been able to talk to him every day and work on the things, we definitely would have been able to hit those characters a lot, like, you know, better on our first draft and everything. And I think the whole show would have improved, but yeah, unfortunately, uh, they could only have Marley on staff full time, and the rest are, had to be floating freelance writers. I'll get on a soapbox real quick and just say that I think all animated shows or shows in general would be better with a writer's room. Justin, you ran a show with a writer's room, and I was on it, and I ran a show without a writer's room. And I'll tell you, it's better to have a writer's room. It's better to have a team of writers who know the voice of the show, so it's not just one or two people trying to like rewrite every script to get it on. Uh, to get it the right tone, like especially with Be Cool Scooby-Doo, like Justin touched on, uh, where all the characters have such a very specific way of speaking and John knows it so well. If he had a couple writers in there, um, they could quickly adapt and learn that language within an episode or two um, of, of being fully immersed. And then everyone's lives would be a lot easier, but uh, that's not the way it tends to work a lot of times, unfortunately, in animation for budgetary reasons. That's my soapbox moment. Yeah, for the you know the 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 rewriting a lot of the the rewriting fell to Marley and to John, and like it was a lot. Like I remember them at the time being very stressed out. Like I remember John specifically, uh, he was smoking a a, a vape pen like a uh, all the time, uh, you know, tobacco, uh, and uh, he had, would have two of them charging, like on his computer at any given moment. And at the time, I was like. That seems like a lot. This dude seems like he's uh, really burning the candle at both ends. Um, then later, when I ran my own show, I was like, "Oh, I get it now. I am dying." Uh, that makes sense that he was like that because <laughs> I didn't like it didn't have to rewrite everyone's thing in the same way that John and, and Marley did. Oh man! <laughs> and Justin, did you uh, happen to remember what some of those ideas that uh, maybe didn't make the cut were? Yeah, I was just looking at them just before we started. Um, one was um, one was based off of like an old riffing on an old uh, Scooby Doo. Um, here, talk to Steve. Let me pull those up and I can look at them. 
Sure. Uh, my memory, I have, I have the memory of essentially a goldfish who, you know, uh, played football without a helmet. Um, so I really need to uh, uh, look this up. Oh, sorry. I thought that's what you were saying the episode was about. I was like, <laughs> what? That sounds terrible. <laughs> but no. I see. Yeah, that's, that's uh, no, it does sound terrible. And that's, that's my reality, unfortunately. Yeah. A, a goldfish with CTE. I get it. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're a goldfish with head trauma. I see. <laughs> that's right. You get it. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess in the meantime, I could talk about Be Cold Scooby-Doo because I only did the story and it's short uh, in that uh, I think I think we pitched um, that was another sort of something that came up in the in the room. And it was it was just like I think the slug line for that was just because there were like lists of Scooby episodes and then things lit, listed underneath it. And one of them just said snow. <laughs> and I was like, what's that? <laughs> and, and John was like, I want an episode it, it, that takes place in the snow. And, and so I, I, I don't think it was just me, but we as a, as a uh, group of five uh, came up with a rough, like, well, what if they went skiing, you know, like, and we got through the ski resort um, idea. Like we got probably 15, 20 minutes into talking about things that could happen in it. And like, uh, we would rarely talk about the mystery or if we did, it would probably change enough that it was mostly just like, could we do an episode about this? Uh, and we got about a little chunk of the way through. And then I threw out, I was like, or, you know, it could be like a, like a parody of the thing instead, you know, that's another way to go with snow. And, uh, and John was like, Oh my God, I love that. <laughs> like I, he, I, he, like, I guess he loved the thing, uh, the movie, and he was like, we have to do that. But we had come up with so much stuff and we had otherwise a pretty much working plan for how to do the episode at a ski resort that it was suddenly like, let's put scientists on the ski resort mountain. Uh, and we were trying to like find a way to connect those two otherwise completely separate, uh, like they each could have been their own episode easily. Um, and so that one, uh, again, I've never seen it, only wrote the story. I don't know how much changed in the script writing process, but if there are scientists, that's because originally it was an idea of what if we did a thing episode? What if we did a ski resort episode? What if they exist in the same uh, episode? And um, and so I wrote up an outline for that one and, uh, and it incorporates some scientists, it incorporates some, uh, some pro skiers and the owner of the resort. And, uh, and everybody has a motivation, flimsy to better uh, for wanting to pretend to be Frostbite the Snowman. Don't know if that's the name that stayed. Uh, and uh, yeah, and that's sort of that. That's how that one came to be. Was you know um, through the through the room process and tossing out an idea too far into it. What if we did things completely differently? And then it just you know became it's in some ways I was like worried I was worried at the time that oh no we're gonna derail things but I think in general with Scooby-Doo like you got to have different types of um, suspects right like sometimes mashing two things together works well because like in the like in the um, Be Quiet Scooby-Doo uh, tour guide and scientist have nothing to do with each other <laughs> like they're just uh, as far as professions and stuff so to see them like oh okay they're both um, suspects in this uh, 
who's going to be the monster mystery. Definitely. And I figured out my episodes. So um, one was uh, based off of the old episode, A Night of Fright is No Delight. Okay. Someone dies, and I can't remember why. He leaves a bunch of money to Scooby. Uh, and so the gang goes and um, watches like a, a video will uh, to figure it all out. And I think that one might have been, A Night of Fright is No Delight, I think might have been that classic Scooby in which they have to like stay overnight in order to inherit the money, which is now such a like a, a common trope that it's a joke. I think that originated in that episode. And so it was kind of revisiting that. I can't remember if it also involved like, you know, more people getting bumped off kind of Agatha Christie style or not. Um, but uh, that didn't, didn't, I can't remember why that didn't go forward. And then the other one was uh, um, an original one in which they go to kind of like, um, there's this fictional uh, um, mystery writer named Eloise Spukey. And so they go to uh, the, the uh, who, who wrote all of her top, all of her mysteries set in um, this fictional t- or set in her real town called like Grubbitz Grove, and every you know, every uh, summer Grubbitz Grove would have spooky days, and I think their conceit was that like maybe Daphne or someone or Velma were like huge fans of this mystery writer, and so they wanted to go and uh, to uh, you know experience spooky days firsthand. And um, the masked maniac, who was like a uh, a common antagonist in the Spooky books, like starts showing up, and then crimes or or something start happening that are just like the books, and they have to figure out who's behind it. Awesome. And uh, I don't remember why that one was killed, but if our track record uh, with um, "Be Quiet, Scooby Doo" was any indication, it was probably because it was way too uh, wordy and um, uh, literary. <laughs> Well, I could have sworn they did something on the on the Night of Fright is No Delight one. They probably did, yeah. I mean, I wonder, yeah, I have no idea what that one ended up being, but I'm sure I'm I, that was such a classic Scooby that I'm sure that they revisited it at some point. Because that was in our second go-around um, when they had kind of decided that they wanted to do more based off the original um series partially as you know homage but partially because the executives were more likely to green light it because you know it was it was based off of a story they were familiar with yeah but even in be cool i've just got it up on my phone here the where there's a will there's a wraith is basically the same premise okay i think yeah that must have been what they ended up doing where the will that's a good that's a good it's a better name than mine i my, my name that I suggested is admittedly terrible. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was trying to do I was trying to do as many rhymes as a night of fright is no delight. So I mine was called oh god, this is embarrassing. It's called the knock turn on this rock berm has a shock turn. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sure, but you know, the I feel like an average viewer might have to look up what a nocturne and a berm is to get the title. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, you that's probably spend half a day with the stories. <laughs> you know, I can, I can absolutely imagine the WB execs looking at that and getting as far as the word berm and being going, Nope, not interested. Next one. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. 
I, I will say I'm very proud of the fact that uh, I believe there was an early conceit that John had said he would love it if every episode had um, had Scooby-Doo uh, in in the title, like Be Cool Scooby-Doo. And uh, and Justin and I's episodes are the only ones to do that, I believe, with uh, Be Quiet Scooby-Doo, Be Cold Scooby-Doo, and If You Can't Scooby-Doo the Time, Don't Scooby-Doo the Crime, which, again... There was like 50 some episodes so no one cares and or thinks about but at one point that was the plan for all of them and we did it <laughs> well, i'm glad your episode got killed uh and there's no episode with berm in the title <laughs> yeah that's probably it's all for the best look there's some sort of alternate reality out there right now in which this episode exists and kids all over the world are talking about berms, B-E-R-M, and they just can't get enough of berm-related content. And I started a berm craze. It's not too late. Definitely. I think for, for the <laughs> listener, a berm is just a hill. But it rhymed. It fit the rhyme scheme. I bent over backwards to try to fit that rhyme scheme, and it was deeply unnecessary. <laughs> I just looked up berm. And this is a great example of why English is incredibly difficult for non-native speakers, because a berm could mean a mound of snow or dirt as formed when clearing land, or it could also be any strip of level ground on a a summit or a nearly flat portion of beach. So it could either be a hill or a completely flat area. Perfect. I get it, non-English speakers. It's not easy. My heart goes out to you. So if you if you clear snow, you've created a berm next to a berm, and they're literally opposites. That's right. Great. <laughs> and uh, being able to work on Be Cool Scooby Doo, which is you know probably the most like comedic focused Scooby Doo show. Um, what was it like to work on a comedic take with these iconic characters? Uh, I think the show was originally created to be funny so i think there's a lot of it that was just like this is great this feels really great especially in the first act of be quiet scooby-doo where the characters are all talking up off each other and they're kind of stuck in a van and they all have very specific pov um dial like i mean point of uh they have very specific perspectives in the way they say every line so a it's kind of easy to get into their voice and b it's it's also easy to write jokes for them uh, and and then see they're they're kind of like so different that um, they can bounce off each other uh, in really fun ways. So there's part of me that's like, I remember at the time, the hardest part of writing a Scooby-Doo episode is writing mystery. Uh, and it's the part we spent the most time on and cared the most about. But when we were just writing the jokes, it was like, this feels, this is great. This is, this is honestly fun to do. And we don't, there weren't a lot of things that we got a chance to write prior to this, uh, where you'd have five people uh, just being able to talk and instantly know who they are, what their sort of motivations are, uh, why they're, why Shaggy is both scared and hungry. Uh, But everyone knows that with Scooby-Doo. So to be able to like, just work off that shorthand that people already know was just like, a really fun opportunity to to write jokes for and stuff. And, um, and like we've mentioned before, we, we've 
overwrote this script so much that there were just because it was just so easy to write jokes for this that then just we don't have time for this let's cut it um because it was it was so much fun <laughs> i thought yeah i mean if anything i wish it was like even more comedy centric um like the fact that the mysteries couldn't you know in and of themselves be funny or just be you know waved away with a joke the fact that they had to have so much like fidelity to the mystery to me in some ways seems sort of unnecessary like you know john's uh john was good at the mysteries obviously but i think he, he, he clearly cared about the character comedy so much more um and so being able to focus on that would have been great and i think that you know mystery like when, when you watch a mystery basically mysteries work for two reasons that come to my mind right now which is one you think there's a possibility uh, the detective won't solve the mystery. So there's, you know, uh, stakes there of will they or won't they solve this mystery. And then two, uh, the mystery is, you know, catches you off guard or it's, it's complex enough that you're impressed by it and you can't, you can almost figure it out yourself, but you can't. And I think that neither of those things were necessarily intrinsic with the Scooby-Doo mysteries. Like, you know that the gang is going to solve the mystery because they always do. And a lot of times, like, the clues don't really have enough details to understand um, the significance of a clue, especially because a lot of times it's a made-up monster, so you don't quite know all the rules. So it's like, in our episode, uh, the um, crystal crawler leaves a handprint this is a fictional monster. For all you know, it always leaves handprints. Is that significant? Is that not significant? I have no idea. Uh, so as a, a casual viewer, and so like you really don't have a good chance of solving yourself. And then because we have to fit so much into a 22 in addition to all the character content, it's really not going to be complex enough to impress you. So if it doesn't, if you don't, if you don't believe, if you don't have a question about whether they're going to solve it, if you don't, believe you can solve it yourself. And if you aren't impressed by it, there's not to me a ton of reason to do it. So, you know, I wish that we had been able to just have sillier mysteries and just focused on the comedy. I think what you're saying is, is uh, there's like two ways to do Scooby, which is to have real mysteries and then to have it be funny. But at that point you kind of got to sacrifice the mysteries a little bit to, uh, to, leave some room for the for the humor and 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 that becomes the the forefront of the driving force is like just a comedy show um and it it sort of rode the line in between there which you know kudos to this show for what it did but like uh, we enjoyed both aspects and would probably it would probably be easier and maybe uh maybe in more enjoyed more purely if it was one or the other. And I think we've seen tons of um, mystery episodes of Scooby and be cool. Scooby-Doo did a really great job of also incorporating comedy. And I guess what Justin and I are saying is, Hey, why not do one? That's a little more uh, comedy. That's even more comedy and less mystery. Uh, now saying that as it's coming out of my mouth, there's a lot of Scooby-Doo fans who are like, this guy needs to die. <laughs> but, um, but I, which I understand, I understand. I'm just saying, look, there's 40 some different versions of Scooby. 
I think it's it might be time, you know, for just the irreverent Scooby where the mystery is like, you know, we admit it's either unsolvable until the end and they solve it or, or you know, and we're just having fun and, and seeing these characters uh, just go nuts. I don't know. It'd be fun to me. I also, though, like thinking about like thinking about a straight, a straight mystery Scooby would still be hard to do because like there are so many mystery types of mystery you can't do like a detective like Columbo or, or something can solve a mystery in which someone goes missing. A monster needs to be behind all of these mysteries. So what's the mystery? Is it a monster has gone missing or I guess it would be someone's disappeared. And also consequently at the same time, a monster has shown up, but it always has to have this monster. And so that just kind of limits the sort of, of mysteries that you can, you know, get into. The concept is flawed, I'm saying. All Scooby-Doo is built on a, sand, uh, a foundation of sand, and the fact it's held up for this long is a miracle of uh, modern science. I don't believe that. It's, it's fine. And what is it like to try and, you know, squish a somewhat solvable mystery into 22 minutes? really hard <laughs> it's, it's incredibly hard i was talking to marley about it recently because justin and i are working on another mystery show for an adult animated show um and I, we, I was like just talking about how we haven't written like a mystery since scooby-doo uh which we wrote these episodes uh you know eight years or seven years ago or something and uh, I, think it was, well, I think it was I think it was more recent than that. Was it? I don't know. Whatever. It, it feels like a while ago. We've written a lot since then. Between then and rarely a mystery, though. Sometimes the aspects of writing a mystery, we use the sort of tools in that toolbox to tell other stories. Um, sort of pull people's um, along for the ride using intrigue and other things. Uh, but there, but trying to fit all the clues in there is not isn't would be one thing, but also fitting in the, the Scooby tropes of the romp and the, uh, and the haircut scene, which I'm sure John probably talked a little bit about those things where uh, the haircuts when Shaggy and Scooby um, fake out the monster uh, using almost Looney Tune level absurdity. Um, and then the romp is the chase scene uh, with the music. And then there's other little things along the way, but then in an animated show, trying to uh, incorporate clues that you can notice are clues and also don't immediately give it away <laughs> because in a, in a live action show, there's any number of things that someone will hold while they're talking and, and be like, this is odd, you know, or whatever. And then later on, you'd be like, of course he noticed it when he was holding that thing. Uh, and in an animated show, if anyone holds anything, it's such a deliberate thing. It's not like an actor just offhandedly doing it. It's such a deliberate thing that they have to zoom in, especially for kids to make sure, you know, that you're like, it so easily becomes completely predictable that like there, but as we're writing it, we don't want it to be that way. So we do our best to make sure that it's not, which then makes it more challenging. Uh, and, you know, whether we did or not is a, another thing, whether we accomplished that goal. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was incredibly difficult to fit a mystery. And essentially, it's not even 22. It's really like 15 because without the, with the romp and getting there, um, the, the, and the cold open and the cold open, the romp, the cold open, and the uh, and the haircut 
really are like five minutes of a 22. So it's like you have 17 minutes to like introduce a myth to like introduce some suspects and then figure out which one of them is a monster. And it's not just like find a killer. It's you also have to introduce the mythology, the fake mythology of a monster. And then without everyone knows is fake. And yeah, <laughs> and you know it's going to be somebody in a costume. Yeah, that's right. You, you just have to spend a lot of time faking people out and no one is at all like fooled by it. You have to spend at least a couple of minutes explaining this fake monster, which you'll then undo, uh, you know, 18 pages later, which is you're like, I wish I could have spent that page real estate on something else. Yeah, you could you could easily write a Scooby-Doo episode where where three times in one season characters play are the same monster <laughs> like different people play the same monster right like there's nothing that says you couldn't do that uh even different locations you know whatever but like the mo the monster is it could be the same every time it doesn't really matter other than that it's cool to see a cool monster like it's a cool it's fun to watch a new design right uh i think uh but from a structural storytelling perspective the monster is interchangeable every time yeah, I mean, I think in our first draft, uh, we were like a lot more at pains. We're like, all right, we're going to make this a really satisfying mystery. And like we had a lot more clues and we even like threw in a red herring uh, and a couple other things. And consequently, it was way too long. And uh, in the next draft, we're like, all right, simpler mystery. Uh, this happens, this happens, this happens. You know, that was the right choice. And to dive into it a little bit more, did you have like a specific process or a way of looking at it when you were like starting to write? Well, the mystery is like, it's so easy to come up with the, the jokes that like the mystery feel, felt like the thing you'd have to like work on first almost. Yeah, uh, that's the first step for sure. But it's such a weird thing because you'd, you'd come up with the beats of a mystery, but without the other details of... Um, you know where they are going into an episode. So we knew it was going to be a cave with crystals and that you couldn't talk. And then we'd be like, all right, what's the mystery within there? And so we'd come up with the beats uh, and then a possible villain. But then you also kind of have to know what the clues are. Uh, then you have to go, once you have a rough sketch of the beats of the mystery, you have to go and find, figure out the clues. But without that lead to that, um, but without the details of the rest of the episode, it's hard to tell what your clue is going to be. Cause you could say, oh, they find a handprint, uh, because he's got chalk on his hand for sticking, for climbing the walls. Uh, but you, you don't really know where that fits in or how, or, um, or if the other characters are going to have like chalk on their hands for some reason too you know like this is just a purely hypothetical but um you could write a clue with someone where someone has chalk on their hands and then while you're writing the episode be like oh they would all have chalk on their hands and then, like and then you're like yeah I, that wasn't the case in this episode but like that would that kind of stuff did happen where it was like we can't use this as a clue at all because it would never be weird it would be a thing that would be totally normal so like but the mystery was always the skeleton that we would start with. Um, and it was hard. Uh, 
but once we once we figured out a rough version and thing and clues did change which was which was the hardest part was like we would find out hey this clue doesn't really work uh why would this character do this thing um and then we'd have to while the sort of like fix the plane while we're flying it and that was like always a um a, a difficult task but writing the comedy and everything was always so fun that it was just kind of like all right you you focus on the mystery that's what you have to do um you know again i don't want to pretend like we wrote a perfect mystery or anything uh but that was what we were uh attempting and trying and thinking about uh for most of that was our cent that was our grounding center for for the writing process like josie mentioned in her episode and i also recommend people listen to her episode i don't just they shouldn't just listen to marley's in fact you know what don't listen to marley's listen to josie's um uh she mentioned that you know the executives were strangely particular about the mysteries like they would um have a lot of notes about clues and and such that you would kind of that would kind of throw a curveball to you midway through and it would have a lot of ripple effects when you change things um so you know to me it was just one more reason why either commit to having a full-on mystery show or have a full-on comedy show and to add to jump onto that a little bit i think when you're because the way it works is we would write the outline first get that approved and then we'd write the script and in a three page outline, when you write a mystery and you include each of those clues, it is so predictable uh, who did it, what these clues are building to that you could read a three page description of a 22 minute episode with three different clues building to a mystery and two suspects and be like, I know who did this after the second clue. It's so obvious, but it's meant to be that way because it's an outline. It's supposed to be like, we're walking you through this. Whereas when you write the script, you can kind of hide it with jokes and, and move things around and make it slightly less obvious. Um, but the execs are just reading uh, an outline where it's so obvious and they're like, this is so clear what you're doing. Change this clue or, or whatever. And you're like, yeah, I know, but it has to be clear because we're going to build a whole episode around it. Uh, if it's confusing in the outline stage, it'll be really confusing in the when the script's done. Um, so that was always like a step that uh, felt like a challenge was we needed to be clear enough in the outline uh, that um, that it's clear what's happening and motivations are are all set up the way you're supposed to in an outline, but also fun and interesting enough that the execs aren't upset that it's so obvious, <laughs> uh, which was. A weird tightrope to walk yeah that's always a like the fact that that executives or other people read multiple stages of a, a script is always a strange um you know uh tightrope that you have to walk we have to try to keep it interesting for them at every stage because and especially like with 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 comedy and with jokes that sometimes if you like if they see a joke that's was in the outline now they are seeing it again in the third draft they're like, oh, you know what? This isn't funny to me. And it's just because, well, no, it's just because you've seen it so many times. Joke's a little predictable. <laughs> it's lost the novelty, but they'll be like, I'll oh, just change it. And you're like, oh man, it's, uh, 
so trying to figure out how to how to how to deal with that you know especially it's a strange part of comedy that i gotta imagine that in drama isn't uh you know the same kind of thing i gotta imagine you have exact notes uh being like she's crying in this scene because her her boyfriend was murdered i mean i guess she would do that but like what's more interesting here you know i I have to hope that that doesn't actually happen those conversations yeah and not just necessarily for Scooby, but when you're working on a script together, do you have specific tasks or do you work it through together? How does that dynamic work? We've done it all. Um, honestly, we've written together long enough that we've tried a bunch of different versions of stuff. Um, Justin, what do you think works the best? Well, we definitely need to outline it together for sure so that we're both on the same page and the more clear the outline is, the better. You know that, um, and then from that point on, we have an option of dividing it, and whether it's that we divide it and write it separately, and then send it to each other, and we rewrite it separately, or we do a first draft separately, and then rewrite it together, or sometimes you know just do a first draft together. Like if we have the time, unlimited time, yeah, <laughs> and it doesn't usually happen. Um, that if we can actually write a first draft together where we're both trading off of the keyboard and we're kind of talking through everything, that ends up with, you know, in some ways they're just better because you just, every joke is is, is um, pretty tight at that point. But you get to the same point. Like I, I, I've, I'm pretty confident that scripts that we wrote both in the same room versus scripts that we wrote completely separately, by the time it gets to the end stage, I like to think that they both have a comparable level of quality. That said, the pandemic and now the fact that we are in two different countries, uh, we're working on a feature right now. And it's the first time we've written a feature in quite a long time. Uh, and uh, the fact that we are completely separate has, has been hard. Um, we definitely have kind of had to like re-break it several times during the course of writing it. And to elaborate on that a little bit, uh, when you're, when you're writing together, you can have a system and you can sort of like cheat on the system a little bit. You like the writing system of who, who writes this and what time and stuff, because you're close proximity and you can discuss things easily. But when you're in different time zones and, uh, and you never see each other in person, uh, and you're working on a feature film, um you really got to stick to that system you really gotta go okay treatment outline detailed outline first draft second draft and we skipped one of those steps and we paid the price we were you know uh major problems started popping up because we couldn't just communicate super we'd have to schedule calls which was you know instead of being in the same office can't do that because the pandemic um we'd have to schedule calls and then also the window shorter because it's only one hour, but the time zone is different. And Justin has a child that has uh, to be watched over and taken care of. And I uh, start drinking at four 30 every day. Uh, uh, just kidding. It's five 30. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, there's, there's, uh, not to not to quickly move away from Steve's alcoholism, <laughs> but uh, there's a there's a truism in uh, in writing like that it it takes the time it takes and there's no shortcuts. 
if you don't spend the time outlining, you're going to spend the time rewriting, um, and it'll, it'll ultimately, you know, take the same amount of time. So you might as well spend the time outlining because it's easier. Otherwise, yeah, the rewrite will just take twice as long. Yeah, and it's easier to figure out problems in an outline than it is uh, once when you're in the middle of it. <laughs> And you're like, when you're noticing the problems while you're in the middle of it, it feels so daunting. Uh, when you're noticing the problems in the outline, you're like, all right, we got to fix these before we start. And if you can somehow not notice the problems until you're completely done with the first draft, that's nice too. But most of the time, by the time you're finishing the first draft, you're like, oh my gosh, there's so many problems. How are we even going to fix these? And you, you start like spiraling and it's hard to even finish the first draft. Uh, and that's where we got where we were, we got to a point with a recent project that we were just like, all right, well, let's fix some of these problems and then finish, and then we'll fix the rest of the problems, uh, which is not the way we would want to do, but it uh, it had to be done. Yeah, the nice thing I think about being at the point we are in our in our writing partnership is uh, that I can trust the process. That and like you know, I think there was if we were doing this project years ago and we're as in the weeds as we have been on this project, I definitely would have had some moments of panic being like, this project is hopeless. And also, I think I might be bad at this. <laughs> uh, and now this time along, I'm like, oh, we'll figure it out. Like, I know we'll get through it. We'll figure it out. And uh, that's, that's at least a cold comfort, uh, you know, when you're in the middle of it. I think we're bad at it regularly, or not we. I think Justin's great. And he always surprised me with funny stuff. I think I'm pretty bad at stuff uh on a regular basis but then i'll write one line and be like oh, i'm a genius uh and then i'll write uh an episode and it'll get leaked online and everyone will be like oh man this is the worst episode of television ever and i'll be like oh <laughs> and then i'll write one ep one line of some other project and be like they don't know what they're talking about i'm a genius <laughs> and it's just like a purely back and forth bipolar uh fun time you know yeah, that's that's true of, of of a lot of writers that you kind of have to be in some ways an egomaniac who doubts themselves uh, at every stage. Um, but the nice thing about partnership is that you can have confidence in the other person. Because yes, I definitely sometimes I'm like I'm terrible at this, but at least Steve is good, so we got that going for us. Um, I'll add also one tiny aside, and I don't know how you'll cut this in in any sort of way, but since we talked about it before you started recording. Uh, I'm in another country right now. Uh, I'm in Canada because my wife is producing a TV show that's shooting up here. Uh, and that's why we are in separate countries and time zones. I realized as we said, talked about me being in time zone, it, you know, the viewer, the listener would have no idea what's going on and maybe think that I fled the country, but no, I didn't. Uh, I'm, I love the USA, but Canada's cool too. Methinks you do protest too much. I think you did flee the country <laughs> and this is an elaborate cover story. I'll never tell. And uh, after working together for so long, do you have any like weird or interesting quirks to your process that's like particular to when you are both working together? When we lived in the same uh, apartment and wrote together, like <laughs> we amassed a strange amount of props that we would uh, you know play with while we were writing. Uh, the weirdest of which was like a pair of crutches. And so like when one of us would be writing, the other one would be like crutching around the apartment, you know, talking through the script or whatever, but just like, you know, we would just kind of trade off on, yes, who is on crutches right now. That's 
so bizarre. I totally forgot about that. And just the idea of someone being like, oh yeah, they're my, it's my crutch. <laughs> the other writer mm-hmm. on this team is my crutch. It's such a funny, weird thing. Yeah, we have like, you know, like it's smaller like things to play with when you're thinking about things like, you know, like when uh, like when I go into a room, I'll like bring, you know, like a stress ball or a fidget spinner or like, you know, a worry stone or something, just something to have, you know, I can fidget with while we are uh, writing. I think it'd be pretty strange if I brought uh, a pair of crutches into the, a new room, but I think it would help. I think everyone would have been better, would, would be better off if I brought a pair of crutches with me because they're kind of fun to play with. They are fun. They're they're honestly a really good uh, sort of tactile thing to mess with while you're thinking. Uh, it's just sort of crutching around a room and um, like a ball, but but with your whole body. Um, the only other quirk is uh, when we write at my house, we have to fend. Uh, they, my cats just try and climb on both of us at all times, uh, so it's pretty much just trading off um, who's gonna who's gonna. <laughs> let the cats climb on them and who's not. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it, I think. And as a complete aside, how many cats do you have and what are the names? <laughs> oh, I have two. And in the video, you can see that he just hanging out next to me this entire time. Uh, that's Roscoe and somewhere else is Rex. Uh, uh-huh. They're brothers. We found them in our friend's backyard. Um, so they're when, when they were kittens, which is how we know they're brothers. Rex and Roscoe. And uh, back to Scooby-Doo here. Um, do you have a favorite member of the gang in general or a favorite member of the gang to write for? Well, I mean, definitely on uh, Be Quiet Scooby-Doo, Velma was the most fun. Like, I, I kind of think that now I'm having some flashbacks to the room. Uh, and I think that, like, maybe the re- only reason we took, like, selected, a, like, a volunteered for this episode was because Velma turns into a monster, uh, and I don't know if that you know was a was a good trade off for writing one that was completely silent because that yeah that was a headache, uh, but that part was really fun and uh, you know definitely that's one of the parts I'm like I can't wait to see what the, what the artist is going to do on this and they absolutely like went above and beyond on that. I I will probably agree um, though I. I can't pick, it's hard for me to pick one. Velma is great because she has uh, such a great dry um, logical uh, humor that like you can, that's different than anybody else in, in most animated shows. Uh, you see her types of her, you see characters like her in, in like Big Bang Theory and stuff. Uh, but like she is so analytical and like will correct people in a way that you're like, oh, you, you know what she's going to say and you know how it will be funny. Uh, in the same way you get with Shaggy and Scooby, but everyone knows how to, like, people see that coming, uh, whereas Valme, maybe not. Um, like the jokes, I mean. But I also do really like Shaggy because he's so cowardly, but also so hungry. That it's like these two conflicting character points of view that are legitimately funny. That it's just like, he's terrified, but there's food over there. Uh, and then Scooby is kind of almost an extension of Shaggy because he's he's there to just, to some extent, comedy wise, he's his foil and he's there to um, to deliver funny punchlines and responses to Shaggy. Um, so they're kind of a pair, but I would say Velma is 
you get to do the most like new interesting stuff with with her character yeah i also think that like fred was fun um as well because like especially in our episode in in uh in be quiet you know john's originally talking about comparing him to comparing him to basil faulty that definitely comes across in ours where he's getting exasperated by the uh, the rest of the gang um like that's a fun dynamic i think in in later episodes i think they toned that back a little bit because i think if you watch all these episodes where he's constantly furious at them you kind of wonder why he's hanging out with them and you want them to get along um but from just a comedy standpoint it's fun to write someone who's like i just want to do this one thing all of you are frustrating that and it's becoming worse and i'm you know getting more and more angry that's just a really fun dynamic to write and i will say daphne uh while i think a lot of times turns out very fun uh her games that she has each episode where it's cool where she has she has something to do the daphne du jour that can go either way that can be a really fun thing that you're playing with in the episode uh that you're like oh man this there's so much fun stuff to do with daphne and then other times because a lot of times those were things that um were that john had already come up with and was like pick one for this episode um something for daphne to do and so sometimes you'd pick the wrong one and it would, and you'd be, or you'd pick one that you're like, oh no, this is hard. <laughs> and, it, and I think in Be Quiet, perfect Daphne storyline. Like she is, I loved her storyline in Be Quiet that she thinks the crystals can give her the ability to read minds. That's to me, perfect. Uh, in my other one, uh, um, uh, don't Scooby-Doo the crime. Uh, her she's doing uh impress she's trying to become an impressionist terrible bad call i definitely like i on a on a monthly basis i'll like kick myself and be like why wasn't it's a prison themed episode why wasn't she trying to break out of handcuffs or uh or a straitjacket it would have been such a better game for the whole episode if daphne is just trying to become an escape artist for an episode about escaping prison that I'm like, why impressionist? It's so pointlessly like, there's no thematic connection. It was difficult to write. (laughs) Also, you have no idea if, you have no idea if the voice actor can do impressions. Like it's really putting the cart before the horse there. Yeah, so it was just like a, a, she can go either way. Sometimes it's great, sometimes it's hard, but uh, Velma, Velma is so consistent. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, Shaggy is the easiest character to write for because he he can get into his voice so easily. It's so well defined. Yeah, I remember that we would like when we were writing it, we would start every line of his by saying like like and then we would write the rest of the line and then we would go back you know systematically and delete some of the likes so he didn't sound the exact same in every single line yeah, so everyone didn't start with like or zoinks <laughs> <laughs> it's just the easiest way to get into his voice yeah but it works yeah similar with uh with scooby we're kind of we'd also we'd all start every line with like yeah yeah that's true and then we would Delete the yeah, so he's not just agreeing with everything. Yeah. Scooby's interesting too, because you can really only effectively, it's very difficult to write his lines if they're longer than like 
four or five words uh, just because of the way he like, I mean, he can talk longer than that, but it's, it's hard to imagine what that would sound like in that voice. Definitely. We talked quite a bit about the challenges of writing for Scooby-Doo, but were there any uh, fun memories or stories from working on the show? Yeah, of course. I mean, like it, it was really great, you know, getting to, to, to hang out and joke around with John and Steve and Marley and Josie, like those, those little, those little few chances that we got to do that was great. And we got great material out of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I also emailed John last night, uh, to try to remember anything from our time. And he reminded me that they, uh, based a character design off of me for one of the episodes, uh, in, uh, in the episode Scream Adana, uh, Kyle, the hovering balladeer is based off of me, um, I like to think it's probably mostly because uh, a lanky, bald guy with a beard is easy to draw, but maybe, maybe there is a, a level of affection there as well. And so that's nice. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, they didn't base anyone off me. Uh, I'm still mad about it. <laughs> no, they, um, I think my, I honestly, I, the challenges aside, uh, I think the whole process is pretty, there's fun aspects of the whole process. Definitely being in the group setting and like bouncing ideas. I think we raved about that earlier, how there should be writer's rooms. Cause it's like the creative process doesn't get better than that, especially when you're breaking new, new stories. Um, but right. Getting a chance to write for characters that are so well-defined is just fun. Like aside from the mystery is always going to be a challenge, but getting to write these characters is fun and, and, when you have a writing partner, you feel it because you're like coming up with jokes that you're like, this is funny. Oh man, this is, we're having fun. I can't believe they're paying us to do this. Um, uh, yeah, it, it is, it's just a fun time writing for uh, specific, these specific characters' voices. And is it at all daunting to step onto a show where the characters are so well known, there's been so many different iterations? Yeah, it's a little daunting. You, I think, but it's, I'd say the characters being well known is like, you have to operate under the assumption because I haven't seen every Scooby episode. I think it would take me, it, I would have had to have spent my whole life up to this point to be able to catch up to the number of Scooby stuff there is. I don't know. Um, but I think you have to, so you have to operate under the assumption that um, there's probably versions of stories that have been done before, but you are bringing something to the table uh and and in our case it was probably more like well we're gonna do a funnier version of scooby than most of them um so and you just have to sort of just try and do your best and and not think about that especially when it comes to the mystery because you're like there's been hundreds and hundreds of episodes every, almost every mystery has been done uh and if you come up with one or two that haven't it's a it's more the exception to the norm or the exception to the rule. Uh, so that can be daunting. So you just really can't think about it. <laughs> like <laughs> that's more daunting. The comedy stuff, you're like, oh, we'll come up with jokes that they haven't done before. Um, but the the mystery and the monsters too, because it's like you get you it's hard to come up with a monster that somebody isn't like, oh yeah, there's an evil, there's an evil snowman in this season, this season, this season. The crystal crawler, it's like there might not be a crystal crawler in any other seasons, but there's probably a monster that lives in a cave in another episode. Uh, it's it's almost a guarantee there's 
a dozen mummies, you know, <laughs> like, so it, some of that stuff is like, you can't think about it. Cause that can be, uh, cause if you start to, if you start trying to be like, it needs to be a hundred percent different and something no one's ever seen before. It's an, it's an impossible task. So the best you could hope is like a new take on something people have seen before, but you know, different enough that it's fun. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I think, I think I could, I could see how you could get daunted um, early on, like about thinking about the legacy or, or, or something about the characters. But I think once you actually get into writing, especially writing a mystery that has so many moving parts, it quickly becomes a little math problem, you know, where X, Y, Z needs to happen. You know, Velma needs to find this. Okay, well, within the parameters that we've set of Velma's personality, why would she do this? And then you're just thinking so you know, straightforward that there's, it doesn't really enter into comparing it to other, other iterations or what its place is in the larger culture. And why do you think that Scooby-Doo has held up for so long? It's going on over 50 years now. Scooby. <laughs> it's, That's it. Scooby's, <laughs> yeah, no, no I, I think a big part of it is Scooby is a cute, dumb dog, which I think like people are like, I, I don't want to sound like I'm insulting him. I think watching Scooby react in sort of like a, goofy way is very fun and uh and then the rest of the characters are are um i do think the episodic nature of telling a mystery story is uh works and it's it's gonna keep bringing people back for as long as they do it despite justin and i's uh personal feelings of how it would be fun if they didn't or like it didn't matter but like there's a reason uh there's a million law and orders because they're all telling mysteries and there's a million uh, Columbo's and castles and murder she roads and stuff so you have you have that and then you have this really funny goofy dog cute dog character in the forefront uh that kids can love and then uh and then a story engine of mysteries being solved by teens that is just like always going to provide uh something to be going on while uh while Scooby is eating big sandwiches. <laughs> um, I think, I think counterintuitively, one of the reasons that it works and has survived for so long is because the original was so underwritten. Um, because you have basically, when people think of the old one, they're like, they remember the way the characters look. And then they remember that there was a mystery and they ran around and pulled the mask off the monster. And then when you like go back and watch it, that actually is all that was in there. It just takes so long to happen because those episodes are so much slower by modern standards. And so because there are only like those five touchstones, you can bring it back in all sorts of different ways as long as you have these characters, as long as you have some element of a mystery, as long as you have, um, you know, a monster, you can bring it back. And like, like John said in his episode, which I also recommend, uh, that, you know, the original Fred and Daphne um, didn't have a ton of characterization, like, like they didn't have a lot of personality. So like, you could bring them back just by like the strength of their design 
and only later like have they added it to personality. Like if you go have like you know IP that's like a superhero thing, like uh, you're gonna reboot Spider-Man. There's so much more that people want to see. Like they want to see the origin story. They want to see their favorite villains. Like they want to see all of these other things happen, and they want to see it in the way that they're imagining. But Scooby-Doo doesn't have that. It is a lot more, in some ways, ill-defined. Like, I don't know why they're driving around in that van solving mysteries. I, 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 like, I'm sure that in some of the versions, there's good backstory for that. I don't know what it was. I didn't need to know that to write it, let alone watch it. Um, and so, like, yeah, I think, I think the it's, it's a strange mix of extremely specific in some ways like all of their outfits are so of their time period and you know shaggy is a beatnik character like parody so those things are so specific and then it's so unspecific in so many other ways they're driving around in a van in ostensibly america i guess uh and doing something for some reason and because of that you can do a lot with it and i think that's why they keep bringing it back definitely i think that covers all of the questions that i had for you is there anything else that you want to add at all before we wrap up here as a as a scooby super fan do you know why they're driving around like what is the inciting <laughs> incident what are they trying to do oh gosh i don't know <laughs> right I think John had said that it's the summer before they're it's the summer after senior year hmm. and they're on a road trip. Uh, and that's why I think they go to a college, they go, they visit a college in the first episode. Um, but beyond that, I, I'm. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. <laughs> um, and just before we wrap up, do you have any recent projects that you'd like to promote or older projects, whatever you've worked on? I've already recommended some episodes of your show. Uh, so yeah, people should check those out. Um, well, we'll look up clips of uh, right now Kapow online. It, you won't be disappointed. Um, oh yeah. There's a few online. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that, that's the show that Marley and I created and Steve and Josie wrote on. And, you know, there's, we wrote like 450 sketches, not like a, a, a small portion of that, those are available on YouTube. And besides buying the show on iTunes, it's not really available for streaming. But, you know, if anyone wants to check it out, I think that they'll like it, um, especially if they like Be Cool. Um, uh, I guess sometime next year uh, on uh, the Paramount Network, uh, Guilty Party will premiere. Um, and even though I don't have anything to do with that, that's the show my wife is producing. And so I think that if you watch it, you'll kind of sense me somewhere in the background taking care of our child. Uh, that's probably, <laughs> that's my contribution to that show. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't exist without you doing that. Thanks. Uh, I would say also, if you want to look up something that uh, embodies a lot of our comedic sensibilities uh, is, and it got a little bit of internet love years ago, is our uh, Adult Swim infomercial, Broom Shakalaka. Uh, which is about a, um, a wonder broom infomercial that, um, and things go awry, uh, but people like it and we're really proud of it still. Um, and yeah, we have other projects 
going on, but we can't really talk about any of them. <laughs> and also, they all they all take so long to uh, they take they take so long to develop that by the time they come out, there'll be at least two or three more iterations of Scooby Doo. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, and in three years, we'll be able to talk about them because they're out finally or they uh, they never they never happened. Uh, but uh, but yeah, other than that, uh, personal plug, I review Mountain Dew on Instagram at do's dot and dot don'ts do's and don'ts do's as in D.E.W.S. Oh, yeah. D.E.W.S. Yeah, so you can go there and check out. I have about a hundred uh, reviews of Mountain Dews. That is fantastic. Are there any other social media channels where people can find you? Uh, yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter also at uh, at Walla Words W A L L A W O R D S. Uh, Walla is um, miscellaneous uh, background noise in uh, in TV. Uh, if you are having trouble understanding what that means, it's because uh, no one listens to me. I'm just background noise on Twitter. <laughs> Justin, any social media? Yeah, I'm looking it up. I'm not quite sure what my name is. Uh, yeah, Justin is on Instagram. He does some. Uh, he is a uh, a um, not a professional artist, but he does some fun little art stuff on Instagram. That's really great. And you should check that out. I guess. Um, oh, awesome! It's yeah. Is this is is your name? Is this a, is this my profile? I haven't posted anything in three years, but I'm planning on starting again. <laughs> uh, I think it's Justin B E E C. I believe is the name. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's it. I could look it up if you want. I'm um, trying to look it up right now, but I don't actually like know what I'm looking at. Like, is your username the same as your at name? Gosh, I am not. He's this really old. good. I He's promise, really good I'm not this old. <laughs> like I, the internet is not beyond me. Yeah, it's Justin B E E C, man. I, I had a child, and I Perfect. stopped having time for anything else, and you know, I've apparently forgotten everything. Yeah, that's <laughs> what happens. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today for two whole hours. <laughs> oh boy! Wow. It was very fun. Sorry we took that long. <laughs> uh, no, I love it. And that concludes today's episode. Another huge thank you to Justin Becker and Steve Clemens for taking the time to chat with me. I'm so happy that I can finally share it with everyone. For more Berm-related content, be sure to check out SD on Twitter at Unmasked SD Podcast on Instagram or at unmaskedsdpodcast.com. You can also find the podcast on Facebook under the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo podcast. And of course, you can find Steve reviewing Mountain Dew over on at Do's and Don'ts on Instagram or on Twitter at Walla Words. And you can find Justin at JustinBEEC on Instagram. If you like this episode and want to hear more, also make sure to check those social media channels or the website. Or you can listen to older episodes wherever you like to get your podcast fix. Thanks for listening, and keep an ear out for the next episode. Scooby-Dooby-Doo!